Green, Green Left Weekly, Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. And on the line we have, for your presenters today, we have myself, Jacob... And me, Zane. Hello. And um, yeah, we have a we go um before I get into um the program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from um the lands of the Wandry of the Kulin Nation. We like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land, and that sovereignty was never ceded. And that FreeCR and Green Left Radio um, supports um, the fight back of Indigenous people fighting for um, sovereignty and decolonisation. Okay, so I guess um, Zane, did you want to kind of start off with any sort of particular news? Like, what what have you sort of noticed in the news sort of lately? Ah, uh, well, obviously um, Palestine and the budget, which we're going to be talking about uh, later today. We've got two interviews coming up. Uh, another story that came out yesterday was Telstra being fined $50 million for unconscionable conduct over their treatment of uh, Aboriginal phone plan customers in the Northern Territory. Uh, Telstra admitted to breaching consumer law last year following an ACCC and ABC investigation into its sales practices. Um, the penalty is the second largest fine ever imposed for breaching Australian consumer law. And it comes after Telstra was basically signing um, Aboriginal people, a lot of whom, whom um, uh, they speak uh, Aboriginal language as their first language, and so English is their second or possibly even third language. And uh, people were signing sales staff at the five stores in Arndale in South Australia, Broome in WA, and in Casuarina, Palmerston and Alice Springs uh, engaged in exploitative uh, practices where they um, uh, manipulated credit assessments to sign up customers who would have otherwise failed Telstra credit checks. Uh, they signed up single customers to multiple phone plans in one day. They exploited customers' lack of understanding of the terms and conditions, uh, created a false impression that customers would get devices for free, sold some customers extras they did not want, or that the sales staff uh, misrepresented would be free, and took advantage of a... Um, cultural propensity for Indigenous Australian people to express agreement as a means of avoiding conflict. 
the customers then racked up huge debts ranging from $1,600 to just shy of twenty grand, and were pursued by debt collectors. Um, so, and the meanwhile the um, uh, the five Telstra stores received an average financial bonus of twenty five grand. So basically, salespeople are getting paid bonuses for signing people up to plans that they can't afford in a totally dodgy and exploitative manner. And um, yeah, the debt collectors are coming around to people's houses and you know repossessing their stuff so really disgusting behavior <coughs> and um yeah telstra has been fined 50 million dollars and i can't help but think if telstra had not been uh hocked off by the howard government and remained publicly owned i can't help but think that telstra staff would not be engaging in this type of behavior yeah it's i think it's quite it's very evident i think of a few kind of elements. I mean, you have this, the whole element of, like, I think, of racism at play here. and But at the same time, there's also the fact is one of the incentives um, for, for Telstra is that they want to, because... They, we all, um, they, they're a corporation what, um, wants to produce as much profit as possible. This is kind of one of the many sort of um, exploitative kind of practices that workplaces regularly kind of engage in, including some of them go as far as outright scamming people and getting away with it. Well, in this case, they didn't through um, through racism. So I think that's um, I think that's a quite a, um, a, a definitely a kind of story that's I think very reflective of the political kind of economic system we live under. And actually, just recently, um, it's actually a good sort of um, segue to segue into a sort of another story that's a bit um, related. There was actually an interesting article in the ABC I read recently. And I don't think this has, reading the article, I don't think this sort of has been a very common thing. But it relates to um, JobKeeper and the um, Australian Taxation Office. And there was just recently uh, a report and a story from um, a Migrant, a Migrant Workers Centre organiser, and who was also part of um, Justice Refugees. In fact, he's someone we've actually interviewed for our program before. Um, Hassan had this experience where, when JobKeeper was introduced, he went, um, he, he approached his tax uh, agent um, um, to ask if he was eligible, and basically the ATO advised him. One way um, other that he wore, um, that oh he could just apply for JobKeeper. So he worked as an Uber driver, and Hassan in particular is actually wasn't isn't wasn't actually a citizen. Um, mm. Only he was only on I think a temporary protection visa. Um, so he applied for um, he applied for JobKeeper, and he, because on advice that um, the ATO said oh well we'll just reject your application. Anyway, then it turned out. Um, that the ATO uh, accepted and paid him JobKeeper payments, but then for but then later they then said, "Oh, you owe owe us ten twenty seven thousand dollars in debt because you actually weren't eligible for JobKeeper." And that is um, now, but the the story sort of ends positive because um, Hassan, um, you know, went and brought up his defence that, you know, I was advised that I should just apply. Mm. You're the one, it was your mistake. 
and essentially the ATO sort of used discretion basically um, declined to pursue that sort of um, further. But, of course, there's actually has been other examples of people... Yeah, there would who, be other people out there uh, in people, that position. People who have been previously found ineligible for JobKeeper um, who um, who get uh, a debt from the ATO. And I think it's, you know, it's actually ridiculous because, really, it's the ATO is the one that's giving the money. Uh, mm. you, if, um, if there was a, a, a stuff-up on the line, they should... It's, it's I think, in certain sense, it's... Their responsibility, um, in the case of businesses, for yeah, example, you've got profitable corporations collecting JobKeeper on behalf of hundreds or thousands of staff, giving themselves huge bonuses and paying big dividends to their shareholders, having collected JobKeeper for six months when they didn't need it at all, and now the ATO is hunting down Uber drivers. Whereas yep. Jerry Harvey, he can keep his, you know, tens of millions of dollars. That yeah, I guess. But the, actually, the, sorry, the point I was sort of trying to make is, um, in the case because of how JobKeeper had actually worked, really, if an individual worker has been mistakenly overpaid, it is actually not the responsibility of the individual worker to mm. actually pay. Mm. Um, if the it's because it's actually businesses who actually apply. And put in the um, the paperwork and the application in for um, for JobKeeper. And if there's a case where uh, a, a business has misrepresented um, their application, like tried to bend the rules uh, and so on, it shouldn't be the individual worker who received the benefit of receiving the JobKeeper payments uh, to pay back the debt. It should be up to the the business to um, pay the cost. Mm. Um, but of course, I'm unclear on what has been the sort of precedent in terms of how the ATO has approached this. I guess I would also look at the economic intent of the JobKeeper um, payment, which is economic stimulus. It's so that people like Uber drivers who suddenly don't have any work because people aren't catching Ubers anymore because there's a lockdown are still able to pay their rent, buy groceries, etc. Um, the, that stimulates the economy because it, it stops someone from defaulting on their rent payments and not buying groceries. Jerry Harvey or some um, executive, some furniture sales company or whatever who've collected JobKeeper legally but who have turned that uh, collection of, of stimulus money into dividends and who've put it in their interest-bearing bank accounts or put it into other corporate investments, that's that's not stimulating the economy in the same way that giving that money to poor people does. And this is, a, I guess, a, an ongoing principle of these stimulus things. You need to give that money to poor people who need it. So to me, it doesn't... It, it's just counter to the intent, the stimulatory intent, for the ATO to then be hunting down people who they incorrectly approved for JobKeeper, for whom the payment had its intended effect of stimulating the economy. And um, to get to go back to the actual original kind of implementation of JobKeeper, JobKeeper was always really poorly implemented. In fact, the fact that it excluded um, such a large section of workers, mm. um, especially migrants, um, people who um, only had a ca- um, who didn't um, who had a, only had a casual job for less than twelve months, because 
previously had to have a hmm. job for more than 12 months to be able to receive Those are the people paper. who need it most and, and for whom the stimulatory impact would have been greatest. And there's all this, and there's kind of like this obsession with um, balancing budgets. And of course, we'll have a bit of that discussion when we talk about the federal um, election, um, the federal budget um, later on. One of the sort of interesting things was, you know, for, for a government kind of bureaucracy like the ATO to be obsessed about um, mistaken kind of payments, it almost like ignores the fact that JobKeeper was already work, working on a shortfall to begin with um, because essentially what we what was found later was um, the, the federal government had projected for a certain amount of money being used for JobKeeper and then they found that they actually had used far less mm. than what they had actually projected. Of course, at the time, Josh Frydenberg was trying to twist it and saying, oh, well, it's good. We're, we're, not, we're not spending as much money as we thought. doesn't mean we're going to spend the rest of the money and um, extend JobKeeper to, say, university staff, which was one of the sort of key kind of political arguments um, put forward by um, the NTU at the time. Mm. But yeah, I think, um, I think, yeah, they, all these sort of things, it's kind of, it's definitely kind of interesting to sort of observe, I think, you know, um, how, I think, how, um, how this sort of thing, notion around debt and how government bureaucracies and even corporations sort of, ha- um, deal with it and try to use it for kind of like exploitative kind of purposes that disproportionately impacts on working, um, class people. Mm. All right. Well, I will just play, um, I think I'll play a quick announcement and um, we'll move on to the next part of our program. You are listening to Green Left Radio. It on, it's 7.13am on 855am. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And for the next part of our program, Green Left recently organised an online forum on Tuesday, May the 11th. Um, it was titled Kurdish Solidarity in the Biden Era and basically giving a bit of an update on the kind of current sort of prospects and the current kind of um, political situation um, around solidarity with um, Rojava and the Kurdish struggle for liberation. And the first um, sort of record, um, we'll play a rec- um, we're thinking we'll play a recording of one of the speeches from that particular forum, which is uh, going to be a speech, um, which was the opening sort of talk by Marcel Carter, um, who is a hip-hop artist, journalist and author of two books on the Kurdish question. And he's had experience of travelling to Rojava in 2017 to witness um, the structures set up by the Autonomous um, Administration in northern Syria. So, yeah, 
I'll, we'll be playing a bit of recording of that um, for the next, um, I think the speech goes on for the next 15 to 16 minutes, and then we'll go move on to the next part of the program. So hope listeners um, enjoy. You're listening to Green Left Radio. National Editor of Green Left. Uh, before we begin uh, this webinar, I would first like to acknowledge uh, that this meeting is taking place on stolen land. And I want to acknowledge the First Nations peoples of this country and elders past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. And we are very uh, pleased to have with us Marcel Cartier, Steve Sweeney and Heval Herky at this webinar. And shortly I'll uh, introduce our speakers for their opening comments before we move into a Q&A. But before I do that, I would like to just take this opportunity on behalf of Green Left to encourage all of you participating tonight uh, to become Green Left supporters, if you're not already. Green Left, as a radical uh, media project, has been publishing in print and online for 30 years, and we rely on our readers and volunteers for survival. As an eco-socialist media project, Green Left is about more than just news, information and analysis. Green Left's about taking action and supporting the struggle for system change. During the talks, uh, we'll display a link in the chat box. Oh, you can see it there already. Um, uh, please visit that link at your leisure and become a supporter. Sign up. Well, now to our speakers. Um, so... Leading off first tonight um, will be Marcel Cartier. Marcel is a hip-hop artist. He's a journalist and author of uh, two books now on the Kurdish question. Marcel travelled to Rojava in 2017 to witness the structures that have been set up by the autonomous administration in northeastern Syria. And today uh, Marcel is speaking to us from Berlin in Germany. Um, secondly, we will hear from Steve Sweeney. Steve is a journalist and international editor of the British publication Morning Star. Steve writes extensively on the Kurdish question and uh, he was actually jailed and banned from Turkey for his work. Um, and Steve uh, at the moment is in Suleimani in northern Iraq. And our final speaker will be Heval Herki. Heval is a spokesperson for the Australian Federation of Democratic Kurdish Centres and he is a member of the Kurdish National Congress. Uh, welcome to all of you and uh, over to you, Marcel. All right. Well, thank you very much, Susan, and uh, good evening to you, I suppose, in Australia. Good morning here in Berlin. Um, I want to begin just by, well, first of all, thanking Greenleft for this opportunity. I think putting together this panel is extremely important at this very critical juncture in which not only the Kurdish people are under systematic attack across the region, um, but I, you know, I, I would really have to begin, I think, by addressing another topic, which is so prevalent these days in the Middle East, which is the top story everywhere. Uh, which is the attacks on the Palestinian people taking place in East Jerusalem and, and last night in Gaza. Um, and the reason that I bring that forward, I think, is that oftentimes we have disparate solidarity movements when it comes to these issues in the so-called Middle East, um, where you have 
at, at the current at the present moment a very vibrant Palestinian solidarity movement and um, a lot of people taking to the streets a lot of people raising their voices in support and in solidarity with the just struggle the just national liberation struggle of the Palestinian people uh, the struggle against apartheid the struggle against Zionism the struggle against ethnic cleansing um, and this is certainly a good thing. But at the same time, we have systematic attacks being waged against the Kurdish people by the uh, repressive and far-right government of Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey, um, chemical attacks taking place, bombs dropping every single day across uh, Kurdish territory, um, principally where Steve is in, in northern Iraq, um, also in uh, northern Syria. So, you know, I, I think it's very important that at this stage, we use this opportunity to link these struggles, because not only are these uh, struggles taking place in the same region, but these struggles are the unsolved and open wounds from World War One, right? From the disintegration of the Ottoman Empire, from the colonial carve up of the Middle East by the British, by the French, by the other imperialist powers. And um, I think oftentimes there, there's perhaps not very much understanding of the dynamics and the contradictions of the Kurdish struggle in particular, because Kurdistan has found itself uh, situated across four nation states. And these nation states have never uh, given the Kurds equal status. Sometimes they're second class citizens. Sometimes they're not citizens at all. Um, sometimes their identity is just completely denied, as is in the case in, uh, in Turkey. So I would just uh, I, I would put that out there first, that we use this opportunity not to have I see oftentimes there's an opportunist uh, perspective, whether from the Kurdish movement or the Palestinian movement. Um, sometimes Palestinians, for example, flying the flag of, of Turkey because they they think that they have a common enemy in the uh, in the Israelis. Sometimes Kurds flying the flag of the, uh, the Zionist Israeli state because they think they have a common historical enemy in the Arabs. Right. Or Arab nationalists. But uh, in reality, I think we need to see both struggles as part and parcel uh, of a worldwide struggle against colonial domination, against chauvinism, against national oppression and exclusion. Um, so, yeah, I, I would begin by saying that and, and, and with the hope that we are able to, um, you know, through our work, hopefully build some sort of uh, bridges between these two struggles at this very key moment. Um, I, I would just start by talking a little bit about my experiences, um, I suppose, in Kurdistan. Um, and, and again, like I, I mentioned the Palestinian question, because for many years, my, my only real focus in terms of the so-called Middle East or West Asia was the Palestinian struggle. I sort of centered everything around that particular struggle, not really knowing what was happening in, uh, in, in other places, Kurdistan in particular. Um, but I think with the, with the Battle of Kobani in 2014, 2015, uh, the, the eyes of the world really began to be set upon uh, northern Syria and Kurdistan in general. And, um, well, sometimes these, these were the eyes of, uh, of, of imperialism, which has its own um, interests and machinations in the region, which, um, you know, sometimes overlap and but should also be condemned. And I'll get into that a little bit more uh, as we go along. Um, but also the, the, the progressive, you know, Kurdish movement that was freeing itself from, from chauvinist rule, um, that was taking the fight against fascism to, uh, to the doorstep of Turkey. Um, and bringing about a, a deep thoroughgoing process, which could be legitimately called a revolutionary process, not a socialist revolutionary process, but a democratic, a, a, a grassroots, deep, radical democratic process with some socialist leanings. Um, and I think that when... Well, I, I know certainly when I went to Rojava in 2017, I, I was able to witness this. I was able to see this um, directly in front of uh, in front of my eyes, and it was 
frankly breathtaking it was it was amazing to see um the way that society had had mobilized in the face of of not only the retreat of the the Syrian central government but also in the um in 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 the face of ISIS and other jihadist attacks uh against the region and and this was i think most clearly expressed to me in terms of the women's question and uh watching women's organizations uh being set up one of them uh, the principal one congress star right so they were taking um you know not not just women's liberation as okay we're going to have women fighting on the front lines in the YPJ which is of course very important that women are able to engage in uh in combat and fight as equals alongside men um but also in in terms of fighting against uh forced marriage fighting against polygamy fighting against all of the other vices that were to be found in society until that point and also to see people organized in communes organized in a uh in a way which actually put the democratic power in their own hands and i think this is one of the you know for me was one of the most incredible things about witnessing this uh this revolutionary project in in rojava now I would, you know, it, it would be wrong of me not to address the contradictions in terms of what's taking place in uh, northern Syria, and that principal uh, contradiction, of course, is the fact that you have had this relationship, which was supposed to initially be a tentative uh, relationship between the YPG, uh, the YPJ, uh, the SDF as a broader umbrella, and the United States. and of course i mean i'm an american right and i've opposed the iraq war i've opposed every single war that the united states has been involved in i can very well understand however how under those particular circumstances in fighting fascism in facing a genocide that the kurdish uh, revolutionary movement there would you know say well we can have a relationship with the united states to fight daesh however i think that now in 2021 you have a situation where there are some quite negative developments in terms of what's happening in Rojava in terms of the uh, overtures which have been given from the SDF in particular or the Syrian Democratic Council towards the United States uh some of these overtures have been calling even for increased US troop presence i think that you know and, and it's a complicated uh situation because on the one hand negotiations between the uh, autonomous administration <clears throat> and the Syrian state have not yet seemed to yield any fruit. So the autonomous administration is saying okay, we need to have a decentralized Syria. We need to have a non-chauvinist Syria. We need to have a Syria which makes room for all ethnic groups and all peoples. And this of course I think is a very just simple demand. Um on the other hand the Syrian state is saying, well, you know, the United States has to leave Syria. You know, we cannot have foreign occupation on our land. I also think this is a just demand. So there's this dialectic at play there and this contradiction which seems uh almost to be lending to each other and it's a very complicated one but I think that it's one that ultimately I think ultimately the trajectory of 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 much of the movement is in this sense at least quite negative um because Syria will never be able to be free and you can never deepen your revolution as long as the United States is there on the ground um and sometimes that's manifested in recent times i think in some quite unsavory uh deals such as the delta oil deal between the sdf and uh the us last year and this you know this is not something i'm going to defend but at the same time i think that we have to not throw the baby out with the bathwater we have to look at the positive uh developments that the autonomous administration and the achievements that they've been able to achieve um but i think also 
I, I think we're in a situation where those achievements are under threat or at least cannot be deepened because of the role of the United States. Um, but that being said, it's very interesting how the Kurdish freedom movement operates across territory. So, for example, in Syria, there's been this tentative or, um, you know, short term, apparently, uh, collaboration with the United States. But if you go across the border with forces from the YPG or the YPJ into Bashur, into into Iraqi Kurdistan, and I witnessed this myself, I crossed the border. You have on the one side in Syria, you had the YPG being given weaponry by the United States. As soon as you cross that border, you're under threat from being killed by U.S. weaponry provided to them by Turkey. And this is a contradiction which which I think the United States, I mean, it, it quite clearly shows that they don't care fundamentally about the Kurdish people. They only care about their own interests, right? And this can be manifested, I think was manifest most clearly in the words of the new Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, who said in 2017, he wrote a very important op-ed in the New York Times. And in that op-ed, he essentially said, to defeat the Islamic State, we should arm the Kurds. But in the same op-ed said that we need to double down on fighting against the PKK, which is essentially, you know, it's another, effectively another branch of the Kurdistan Communities Union. They share the same ideology. Um, Abdullah Öcalan is the ideological leader. So, you know, you, you, you very clearly saw that, uh, you know, on the one hand, they were talking about, yeah, let's arm the Kurds, but let's also facilitate and deepen the Kurdish genocide, which is taking place. Um, so it, it, it goes back to a long history, I think, of Western uh, imperialist powers, you know, pretending as if they care about the Kurdish people. But in reality, they just care about their own um, their own geopolitical interests. And I, I think that's been made clear recently. In January, there was a new NATO war launched against the Ghada region of northern Iraq. Um, the Turkish defense minister, he traveled uh, across the region first to Iraq and then he came here to Berlin and he came here to Berlin because he was seeking uh, support for another war from the German government. And the German government is one of the chief weapons exporters to the um, uh, to the to the Turkish government. So there's complicity of the Western arms companies and the bombs that are being dropped right now. I mean, bombs are being dropped on Gaza and we should condemn that. And those are bombs often made in the West. Bombs are also dropping across Kurdistan. And those are also bombs made in the West. But this is happening every single day. Um, just, just in terms of the, the policy of the, um, of the United States now that Biden is the commander in chief. Well, I don't see any real shift in terms of U.S. policy. I mean, Trump was very amenable to getting on the phone with Erdogan and saying like, hey, um, this this is what you can do for Syria. I'll, I'll hand control over to you. He was very amenable to that. Biden, perhaps less so. Um, and yeah, OK, five minutes. <laughs> so Biden, perhaps less so. Um, so I think we. You know, we're seeing a situation, though, in which there is a lot of continuity. And this this perhaps is best manifest in the fact that just the other day, the United States and the Biden administration extended the bounty on three top senior figures, executive committee members of the uh, PKK and the Kurdistan Communities Union. Um, so, you know, the U.S. is not changing fundamentally its policy towards the, you know, what we can call the Kurdish freedom movement. It's still a policy which, 
you know, despite whatever overtures are made, even by the PKK in saying like, look, we're no longer fighting U.S. imperialism. We're ready to ally with you, which is what a recent interview with um, uh, Jamil Bayek seemed to indicate. Uh, the U.S. is still doubling down on its uh, on its policy. So, you know, I, I think and also we can see this in, in Shengal. You know, we can't really look at Rojava as isolated. We have to look at the entire region. Uh, in Shengal or Sinjar, where the uh, 2014 Yazidi genocide took place, and uh, the U.S. belatedly came in and said, like, look, we're, we're saving the Yazidis, um, the PKK was there. And then that PKK, um, you know, th- that PKK presence became known as the Sinjar Resistance Units. And the Sinjar Resistance Units have set up an autonomous administration uh, in Sinjar, where the Yazidis are controlling their own political life and their own political destiny. And funny enough, interestingly, a lot of people may not know this, but the Sinjar resistance units are part of the, uh, the Hashid al-Shabi or popular uh, mobilization units militia. Uh, so for those who want to say, well, you know, the, the Kurds are nothing but uh, stooges or pawns of the United States, it's a little more complicated than that because you could also make the argument, as I've heard some do, uh, the Kurds in, in, in Sinjar resistance units happen to be pawns of Iran or pawns of, uh, of, of, of the Shia um, Islamist movement, right? So it's a bit more complicated than that. Uh, but in October of last year, the uh, Baghdad government and the Kurdistan regional government made an agreement. And that agreement basically said that control of Sinjar would come out of the hands of the autonomous administration and control would be asserted by the central government and by the Kurdistan Democratic Party. And Turkey is being, you know, Turkey has threatened Sinjar on multiple occasions uh, with a bombing campaign, with a military base that they've built uh, very close by. But what was really important is that this agreement happened under the aegis of the United States. It was Washington that stepped forward and it was Washington which said, Yes, we want this agreement because Washington also wants the Kurdish freedom movement to be separated from each other. They don't, they, they, they want, first of all, the Kurdish freedom movement, I think, in Rojava to be weakened. And they want the Kurdish freedom movement in Sinjar to essentially not exist. And this would cut them off from Kandil. This would cut them off from the PKK leadership in Kandil. So I think, you know, I think I would just end by saying this. Um, recently, Steve and myself were in Iraqi Kurdistan, and we went to a commemoration of the uh, 1988 Unfall Genocide, in which up to 182,000 Kurds were killed systematically by the Saddam Hussein government, with the support of the United States and Britain, which is often forgotten, because retrospectively, again, the Western powers would like to say the Kurds are our friends. Well, you facilitated, you gave the chemical weapons to Saddam Hussein, and this happened. And, and the people there have never forgotten this. So I think, again, for the United States, whether in the Trump era or in the Biden era, we have to understand that they have no permanent friends, only permanent interests. And I think the Kurdish freedom movement and the Kurdish national liberation struggle uh, should be supported. But I think we have to do so critically. We have to do so understanding that oftentimes um, perhaps it may seem as if the interests of the U.S. and the, the, the Kurds overlap, um, but ultimately the United States is still the biggest imperialist power in the world, and it still, you know, is worth fighting against. So I would just end on that. 
All right. You're just listening to a recording of a um, of a talk from um, Marcel Katia, Katia, and on which was a forum organised by Green Left, um, Kurdish Solidarity in the Biden Era. And for our listeners who enjoyed that presentation and want to listen, um, hear more, you can go on to the Green Left website, or I think the YouTube is probably a better way of getting um, getting access to it because I'm not sure if it's up online on the Green Left website yet. But if you look up on Green Left TV at YouTube and search for Kurdish Solidarity in the Era of Biden, and you can have a, a bit of a listen to the rest of the talks um, from that public forum, which was quite a, definitely a very interesting public forum on on the Kurd, on the Kurdish question and the prospects around Kurd, um, building. Um, up campaigning around Kurdish um, solidarity. So, yeah. Anyway, I might go. I'll just go play a quick announcement, um, and then um, and then we'll go on and we'll move on to discussing maybe another quick news story before our first interview for the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio. Palestinians are being silenced and massacred. We're asking you to stand in solidarity with us. Over the past month, we've witnessed Israeli settlers stealing the homes of more than 3,000 Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah through forced ethnic displacement. In response to this, Palestinians of Sheikh Jarrah began peacefully protesting against their forced displacement. Israeli settlers responded to this with violence backed by the Israeli police. This has now escalated to violence towards Palestinians in Jerusalem, who demonstrated in solidarity with Sheikh Jarrah, as well as peaceful worshippers in Al-Aqsa Mosque. We have seen the settler colonial violence spread to Gaza, where airstrikes have killed 65 Palestinians so far, including 16 children and wounded 300. Most recently, Israeli settlers have broken into homes in Yaffa, Haifa and Akka to assault and kill Palestinians. What is happening is not new. It is the continuation of the Nakba. Nakba, translating to catastrophe, are the events of 1948 in which more than 700,000 Palestinian refugees were forcibly displaced from their homes. The Israeli settler colony was subsequently founded. What is happening in Palestine today is the most recent manifestation of the Nakba. We Palestinians in Naam, Melbourne, echo the demands of our siblings across Palestine who are resisting settler colonial violence. We are protesting to save Sheikh Jarrah, to protect the holy site of Al-Aqsa Mosque, to end the siege and Israeli aggression on Gaza, and to say no to ethnic cleansing and settler colonial violence. Join us this Saturday, May 15th at 1pm outside the State Library to have our voices heard and our demands met. Along with your signs and banners, please bring your mask and hand sanitizer to keep the rally COVID safe. For more information, head to the free Palestine Melbourne Facebook page. See our supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. And before our f- um, first interview that we're going to be doing around 7.45, I'd like to sort of read um, a bit of a new, um, news update and article from um, Green Left. And that is about there has been um, a, a new campaign that's been launched um, by Better Red Than Dead work- workers, um, which is um, Better Red Than Dead is... Um, is a bookshop, <laughs> um, and um, basically 
workers at Better Red Than Dead um, have um, in Newtown have launched a campaign for rights and conditions and basically arguing for having an enterprise bargaining agreement um, that includes a formal contract, a workplace and sexual harassment um, policy and to be paid a living wage. Um, the retail, RAFU has been supporting um, them in their campaign since um, late kind of last year. And I guess some of the kind of elements of this has been that um, the workers um, have organised to meet the bookshop owners to discuss the EBA in March. And at that time, the owners initially agreed, but then their lawyers um um, that then their lawyers contacted Rafu, saying that they had done so only under duress, and then, then the owners had subsequently launched a legal action. And a post on Rafu's sort of um, social media featuring uh, a photo of workers holding the union flag was shared by three of um, the book um, shop workers. Better um, Red Than Dead management sent season to, um, to test um, letters to Rafu and to workers who shared the post demanding it be taken um, down immediately. Rafu did so, but the owners still demanded two members, two staff members, attend show cause meetings in which their jobs were threatened. And essentially, this is really like, it's just a kind of an amazing kind of example of um, bosses being um, um, basically acting in, in intimidation. And Rafu essentially argued that these, uh, rightfully, that these actions were intimidation. And really, um, it, um, jo- um, Josh Cullen, who's a Rafu secretary in the... Um, reporting from this article, told Green Left that the owners are doing everything they can to delay and frustrate the bargaining process, despite the fact, despite knowing a majority of work, uh, workers want to bargain. And I guess another kind of interesting, sort, another sort of element around this um, industrial campaign is that initial, um, initial um, in terms of the legalistic kind of stuff, an initial Fair Work Commission conference on May 5 did not resolve the dispute, and there's going to be a July 1st he- um, hearing um, on a hearing on July 1st to decide if the bookshop owners will have to bargain. And I think one of the the other things is really it is not um, it is kind of not un- it is uncommon for workers at small workplaces such as independent um, bookshops to collectively organise. So I think this is a very sort of I think positive kind of development, mm. and I think you know. Um, it's really like an example of, you know, this whole kind of initiative really wouldn't have been um, happened without the workers at Better Red Than Dead taking um, action. And in fact, there's a real kind of sense of commitment of, um, of taking active organisation. And of course, one of the other sort of um, interesting sort of um, things, and this is sort of drawing on an article that was sort of printed in the Jacobin is one of the one of the sort of difficult um, one of the sort of difficulties that unions face. And I think this is actually a as someone who who sort of um, as someone who sort of has a lot of um, who's into sort of particular kind of hobbies, um, like for example video games, um, there is a bit of an extraction for workers who are kind of working in these sort of hobby kind of orientated sort of workplaces. Like for example, EB EB Games, for example, very sort of exploitative sort of um, company. You know, pays their workers 
terrible wages, yet amongst a lot of, you know, my friends and sort of networks who are into sort of gaming, you know, working at a place like EB Games, um, selling video games and, and so on is like seen as like a really attractive kind of prospect, mm. like something that you expire to do. And of course, that is a, a real, real sort of phenomena in bookshops. And of course, this article in Jack and, um, highlighted this kind of illusion that's created by the publishing industry that, you know, basically their workers are doing it for the love of books. And of course, that basically means that the bosses try to use that as a justification for justifying wage theft, unsafe working conditions and insecure, um, insecure appointment. And I think really that is, I think one of the sort of challenges that unions are kind of fight facing, like Rafu, in terms of organising some of these kind of workplaces. Hmm. Yeah, shout out to Rafu because um, the temptation for unions is to just try and organise the larger workplaces where you've got a higher potential hall of members and where it's it's the whole thing is basically a bit a bit more straightforward organising a, a Byzantine patchwork of small workplaces like this is difficult territory for unions, uh, but it, it's necessary work and it's it's really great to see RAFWU um, putting the energy into something like this because if that if they're able to get that EBA up, that's, that's a really good example for workers in other small uh, retail workplaces like that um, to be able to do the same thing. And it's it's pretty obvious Rafu is sort of guiding and supporting the workers to fight their own fight, and that's that's the gold standard, I reckon, for union organising. Hmm. And yeah, definitely recommend um, going onto the Rafu Facebook page or the Rafu website. I'm, as far as I know, I think they have. Um, I'm pretty sure they have a petition on this whole sort of indu- um, industrial kind of dispute, um, but led by the Better Red Than Dead workers. So yeah, definitely. Um, recommend our listeners look into that. Anyway, I'll go play um, a quick announcement and we'll go into our first um, interview for the, and discussion for the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio. Victoria Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. All right, you are listening to Green Left Radio, and on the line we have um, we have Alex Bainbridge, national co-convener of Socialist Alliance, and um, a regular kind of writer for Green Left. And we have him on the program um, today to have a bit of a discussion about the kind of recent federal budget that was unveiled by the Liberal um, government on that happened on Tuesday night, um, which has a number of kind of sort of announcements and changes. It's basically their kind of 
um, budget that they're trying to basically announce in the kind of lead up to kind of a potential kind of federal election. Um, so Alex, I guess I wanted to sort of hear, I guess, what are some of your sort of initial kind of comments, I guess, on this federal budget? Um, and your criticisms um, to, I guess, start off, I guess, a bit of a kind of discussion for our program. Look, I 100% agree with uh, what Adam Band said, that this is a billionaire's budget. Uh, I think that's very clear. You can see that from the, um, the, you know, the tax cuts that are going to the rich still, the handouts to corporations and the fossil fuel industry, and the fact that there's, uh, you know, basically they're planning for uh, well, you know, for wage rates to go, wage rises to go below inflation for the next two years. I mean, like, I mean, that's just, you know, a few headline matters. So, I mean, for sure there are some, uh, there's obviously some ways in which the government has tried to make this a, appear like it's a budget of sweeteners, like, like obviously gearing up for an election in the next little while. Um, in that sense, it's not the hardest horror budget you've ever seen, but undoubtedly this is a budget that meets the interests of billionaires more than ordinary people. And I guess, I mean, one of the, one of the kind of interesting kind of things about, um, the federal budget has been in the wake of, I guess, um, all the kind of allegations, um, that have kind of happened in, um, toward, against the Parliament House, um, of, of staffers around sexual harassment and sexual assault. One of the things that the Liberal government has kind of used to sort of, um, sell this kind of budget has been they are basically promising um, millions um, kind of spent in um, in kind of childcare, uh, millions kind of spent in um, domestic violence services, women's services, etc. And I guess, I mean, what... What, what, um, what do you think of kind of, I guess about that? Is it, is this budget like as, do you think this budget as the Liberal government is trying to claim is really like some positive kind of thing for women and, or is it just really like a cover for the Liberal Party's own, um, misogyny? Look, I think clearly the government has been under a lot of pressure, rightly so, uh, for their, uh, completely, uh, inadequate um, response to the, the rape allegations in Parliament House and the sexual assault allegations and just in general their, their, their misogynistic attitudes. So the government's been under pressure and they've tried to make a response. Now, obviously, I'm, you know, I, think, I think that, that you know, it is just true. You put more money into childcare, that will mean that, um, you know, that a number of women have got more options than they had before. Uh, great. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, you know, that is fantastic. Um, at the same time, you, you see, even the way the government sold that, they basically sold that on the basis of how many extra uh, hours you know, Australian workers could work, how much this was going to add to the GDP. You know, the GDP. So they're looking at it in a very, uh, you know, uh, pro-corporate lens. And I think that if you step back and look at the bigger question, to me, I think that if you want to actually solve the real problems about you know, sexual assault and sexual violence in this society, that means that there needs to be genuine measures of you know, economic independence for women, um, you know, uh, at the very least, among, among other things as well. So, for example, that would mean uh, we need to have, you know, restore job seeker um, uh, up to at least the poverty wages. At the moment, it's not. We need decent public housing. Um, you know, we need to end the basics card. I mean, these are all sort of basic sort of prerequisites um, to to solve that sort of domestic violence and um, and sexual violence you know, crisis that we've got in society. And it is a crisis. And I mean, other things as well. I mean, like you know, the, like for example, uh, reversing uh, the 
the abolition of the standalone family court. I mean, that was you know the one signature headline achievement of Christian Porter as Attorney General. Uh, well, now he's left that role under a, under the you know the, the shadow of you know, credible accusations of rape. Um, and the government should actually reverse that decision. The, the government should uh, should restore the family court as a standalone court. These are the kinds of uh, issues that uh, that need to be dealt with if the government was serious. I mean, you know, among other things, and I'm, I'm sure there's, there's no doubt other people that can that can tell you more. Yeah. But I guess the, the point I'm trying to make is. Um, Sure, money for childcare, that's great. That'll lead to more choices for some women. Obviously, I think also a lot of that money is going to go to be a subsidy to, to private childcare operators. Um, but just throwing money at something isn't necessarily solving the problem. And to jump into there about the comments around um, childcare, because as, as a childcare worker, really my, my I guess my criticism of this, um, the reforms they're kind of proposing around childcare is it actually doesn't, fundamentally address the issue around um, around childcare because basically essentially the the basic sort of reform and in terms of, you know I will you know in certain sense I will probably benefit from it in a sense as a casual worker because essentially what the government is doing is essentially they will are basically subsidise, um, they're basically extending the, the, the childcare kind of subsidy which basically means that more parents with children um, are going to have an incentive to send their children to childcare because it will actually be cheaper for them. And of course, obviously, you kind of mentioned the government is sort of trying to they they sort of frame that around. Oh yes, there'll be more people going to work, um, sending their children to childcare, um, and that means there's more growth, more GDP, more money sort of flowing around. But I guess I mean that I mean that's all well and good I guess in some ways. But I guess in same sense, as a perspective from a socialist, childcare should be free. And I guess the other issue, um, as sort of um, my union has sort of gone on about, this these childcare reform doesn't actually address the whole issue affecting um, childcare workers, which are that we're um, grossly underpaid and disproportionately most childcare workers are women. And so going back to that sort of point you kind of made about economic independence, that would actually be the key thing that would actually address um, address that issue actually um, um, actually increasing the wages of, um, of childcare workers and it's within the government's capacity, um, to actually do that. But actually to go to kind of like the next kind of, um, point I kind of wanted to sort of, um, discuss is I wanted to sort of have a discussion about in this sort of, about the federal, um, budget and the client because really one of the striking things that's completely absent um, from from this budget, despite these these kind of talks, we're living that we're living in a climate crisis. The fact, that, despite the fact that we had the bushfires that happened at the at the start of um of 2020, um, there, there there's basically nothing as far as I can know that addresses anything about the climate within the budget. And I guess want to hear your I guess some of your comments on that. Well, I think it's a massive failure. I think I mean that alone. Uh, you know, is a is a reason to to not support this budget, um, to not to not be sort of coming behind it and giving it support because you know the, the climate crisis is the the biggest uh, issue facing people today, um, including you know yeah, everybody, um, and and yeah, as you say, this uh, this uh, this budget not only continues but expands subsidies to to the fossil fuel industry. Uh, and you know, there's no, um, not even there's not even like there's not even like subsidies to private renewable energy producers. I mean, I think what is what would be really 
required to actually address the, you know, to move as quickly as possible to 100% renewable energy is to to bring the whole energy sector back into public ownership. I mean, you know, when I say the whole energy sector, I'm not saying like if there's a community wind farm or, um, uh, you know, but, but as a general rule, to make the, the driving force behind the, the energy sector public ownership and then a plan to phase out of fossils, all fossil fuel um, use uh, to be replaced by renewable energy sources. Uh, that is more than feasible in a in a you know in in the in the urgent time frame that we we require, but it's not going to happen just by leaving it to market forces, and especially not. I mean, uh, you know, you, you often hear conservatives say that governments shouldn't pick winners, and what they and I actually disagree with that because that's basically a, an argument that the the government should stay out of the market altogether, and that's basically just a matter of leaving the profit motive in charge. But at the moment, what the government is is not even doing that because at the moment the government is picking winners and they're picking coal and gas to be the winners, and that is exactly the wrong priorities for uh, for this um, for the current situation. And another kind of thing I noticed, I guess, about the federal budget is um, the question, I guess, of immigration and essentially what I've sort of read is um, the federal government is basically going to be increasing um, increasing the funding of Christmas Island because at this stage, Christmas Island is sort of not necessarily that functioning, although there are, there are some people who have been sent to Christmas Island, but basically it appears to be, as part of the federal government, it is the kind of government's kind of agenda to actually increase the capacity of Christmas Island um, to be able to hold um, more um, migrants. Um, I think it's mainly that the main focus is on people that... Um, basically groups of people who um, want to be, um, they want to kind of deport for um, criminal charges, etc. I think there's a, there's a proper term for that. Um, but of course, there's also potential implications for the refugee rights movement um, in terms of their kind of agenda of extent, expanding these offshore kind of detention centres. And then, of course, there's another thing, which is what there's a there's a big attack, I think, on, on migrants, um, um, who want to migrate to Australia because essentially what the government has done is they've essentially done a big sort of budget cut where those who get um, who've um, new migrants who have just gained permanent residence won't be able to have access to any benefits um, like social services like job seeker etc um, unless they live in the country for more than four years following their gaining of permanent um, residence. Yeah, well, I would agree with all those points that you made, and I think that um, one of the things that I mean, well, I mean, sort of a bit tangential, but it also uh, is relating to to the question that you asked. One of the other striking failures of this budget was that there was no money allocated to establish a genuine, decent, functioning quarantine service, um, and or at least quarantine facilities uh, at the time of the, the COVID pandemic. So the federal government has got the you know the, the one Howard Springs facility, which is massively inadequate for the for the quarantine requirements of you know people coming and travelling to Australia, and handing over the rest to the states. Now, my understanding is that if, if the federal government provides quarantine, uh, they need to pay for it, whereas state governments, because you know because quarantine isn't technically a state issue, uh, state governments have got the have you know have got the power to basically make people pay for their own uh, quarantine in a hotel. Um, so, really, the hotel quarantine is inadequate, and we want to get uh, travel, um, you know, 
I guess, allow people the freedom to travel, visit their families and return to Australia, etc. And for people to, other people to come to Australia, uh, we need decent quarantine facilities. So really, we should be not, like, you know, that, that, you know, instead of boosting up money to sort of um, fund the sort of punitive, uh, you know, incarceration of refugees, uh, you know, in basically prison-like conditions, uh, we should be uh, promoting freedom by, um, you know, establishing quarantine facilities that basically, you know, make everybody easier to travel. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, look, it goes without saying, I mean, I've been a long-time refugee rights activist. I think that the current um, the current so-called border protection regime is actually not protecting Australian borders at all. It's only protecting... is using racism to protect... Um, you know, corporate profits and, and a general neoliberal pro, uh, program, and it's 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 massively unfair. And and I mean, that's I mean, it's, you know, it, it, it not the same issue, but connected to that is the general racism in immigration, where it's much easier to come to Australia from a wealthy country than from a from a poorer country, where typically people come you know, have with black and brown skins. And it's, it's it's a racist policy um, that permeates the entire immigration system in Australia. Uh, and, yeah, we should, you know, we should move away from it. Now, part of that, part of that is budget allocations and part of it is just actually a change, of, a change of policy. But I guess to come back to what I started with, if, you know, a much better risking to spend money on instead of, you know, boosting Christmas Island or, or, or spending money to continue uh, the unjust imprisonment of refugees would be to, be, to build quarantine facilities instead. Hmm. And um, given that we're running, um, we're running a bit low on, I guess, on time now. I'm thinking we can kind of conclude, I guess, a bit of this kind of discussion. Do you have, I guess, any kind of final comments you would like to kind of make, Alex? Look, I think basically there's a there's a, a famous Russian one said that 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 people are always going to be deceived in politics if they don't if they if they don't learn to look at every single measure proposal. Um, policy through the eyes of which class is going to benefit. And from this budget, it, you can see very clearly that this is a budget which is designed to make the LNP government seem more palatable and, you know, to advance the interests of the billionaire class. And that's why we need an alternative to, uh, to this style of, uh, you know, billionaire budgets. We need, we need people's budgets to look after ordinary people, not, not the corporate elite. Hmm. Right. Thank you very much, um, Alex. Um, we'll go conc- um, um, for your for this um, great um, for this discussion on the federal budget. Cheers, Alex. Thanks, Jacob. Talk to you again. Okay. All right. We we're just um, talking to Alex Bainbridge, um, national co-convener of Socialist Alliance, and so a regular writer for Green Left, um, with some about some um, discussion and analysis of the kind of federal budget that has been announced by the government. Now, we're getting into the time for the activist calendar, but I'll just quickly play um, an announcement and we'll go into um, into that um, shortly. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our radio. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep us going for another year. Independent community media is more important than ever, and we need your support to power community radio. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. 
To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03 9419 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR Community Powered Radio. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and it is 8.02 a.m., and so it is now time for the activist's calendar. So in terms of events that are, I guess, coming up on um, tonight, there is going to, on Friday the 14th of May, there's going to be an online film screening, Dare to Struggle, The Life and Politics of Jack Mundy, and that's going to be happening at 6 p.m., and I'm pretty sure you can, um, it's an event organised by the Search Foundation. And, um, yeah, you can go check out the event, um, if you on Facebook to find the details, search the Search Foundation and check their Facebook page under events to get the, um, the, the details of the Zoom and the Zoom link. On Saturday, there's going to be an emergency protest um, for Palestine, um, which we played an announcement of shortly, and it's going to be happening at 1pm um, at the State Library this Saturday. And the rally has been called in re- response to the recent um, bombings of Gaza by um, by Israeli um, forces in um and we're going to be doing a bit of, we'll be doing, having a bit of discussion um, with a Palestinian activist about the current, current kind of developments there. But yeah, definitely highly encourage you to get to the protests at 1pm this Saturday at the State Library. And then on, um, and then Green Left will be having its 30th anniversary trivia night. Um, and that's going to be happening at 6 p.m. at the MUA Hall, 46 Island Street in West Melbourne. Um, it's going to be a bit of a fun, it's also technically also a fundraiser for Green Left Radio. So yeah, if you, um, like a bit of trivia, I encourage you, um, to go. Um, on Sunday, May the 16th, there's going to be a rally, Tamil Genocide Day at 2 p.m. at the State Library. And at 328 um, Swanson Street in the city. And then on Sunday, May the 16th, um, there's going to be a public meeting um, organised by the Victorian Myanmar Youth, um, Blood on the Streets Inside Myanmar's Revolution. And that's going to be happening at 6pm at the Brunswick Town Hall, corner of Dawson Street and Sydney Road in Brunswick. And then on Monday, um, uh, May the 17th, um, there's going to be um, on there's going to be a forum, No Justice, No Peace, Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, and that's happening at 6.30pm at the Wheeler Centre. And I'm not sure, usually sometimes Wheeler Centre events tend to be booked out um, quite early. Um, so I would check... Oh, wait, the event... Sorry, um, sorry, well, sorry, I just read, looked up the details. Apparently the event has been cancelled, so um, apologies. Um, there's not... Um, that event is actually not happening. So, um, yeah, bit strange. Um the next um, event on Tuesday, May the 18th, is there's going to be a rally, No Way Metro, in support of RTBU members at 9am at the Fair Work Commission, 11 Elizabeth Exhibition Street in the city. Um, and then on Thursday, oh, maybe we'll get Zane to, to advertise this. Yes, my band, When Our Turn Comes, uh, playing a Climate Strike Eve gig at Cafe Gummo with the one and only Les Thomas. So doors open from eight o'clock. It's five bucks entry. Come along and get yourself a fill of radical music ahead of the climate strike. And because you'll be taking Friday off to go to the climate strike next Friday, Thursday night is kind of like 
Friday night. It's the start of your three-day weekend. So come and, come and get festive and listen to some radical music. Yeah. And then the following Friday at 1pm at Treasure Gardens, there's going to be um, the climate strike. And um, that's going to be at Treasure Gardens, 1pm on Friday, May the 21st. And then on Saturday, May the 22nd, um, there's actually a number of um, different sort of events sort of happening. Um, So the first event, there's actually going to be a Thailand, a a protest organised by the Thailand community in solidarity with the um, the protest movement in Thailand. And as far as I know, it's going to be happening 11am at the Federation Square. And then following that, there's going to be another um, um, Palestinian rally around Nakba. 73 years of Israeli colonisation must end. And that's happening on Saturday, May the 22nd at 1pm at the State Library. And then on, on there'll be a protest, Stop Independent uh, Assessments, No Cuts to the NDIS. And that's going to be happening at 2.15pm at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street. And then on Sunday, May the 23rd, um, just want to get the, quickly get the details of this because it didn't appear to be in the activist calendar. There's going to be a Stop Asian Hate, um, a vigil that's going to be happening at, um, Federation Square at 2 p.m. And it's being organized by, um, a- a- Asian Australian Alliance. Um, so that's going to be happening at 2 p.m. Uh, on Sunday, the 23rd of May. And then there's going to be the Pride March um, on Fitzroy Street in St Kilda. And I think search up Pride March on um, the Midsummer um, Pride March and you should be able to get, I think, the, the sort of details and the timing of that because it usually is an all-day kind of affair. On Tuesday, May the 25th, um, there's going to be a discussion, um, Capitalism Has Failed the Climate, What's the Alternative? And that's going to be happening at 6.30pm with meal from 6pm at the Resistance Centre, level 5407 Swanson Street in the city, opposite RMIT. And then on, um, on Thursday, May the 29th, there's going to be a rally, Defend um, um, Melbourne University staff at 1pm at the South Lawn at Melbourne University. And then on Saturday, May the 29th, um, there's going to be um, a union solidarity rally, um, Free the Medivac Refugees at 2pm at the Park Hotel 701 Swanson Street in the in Carlton. And then finally on um, Sunday, March, um, June the 20th, um, World Refugee um, Day rally, permanent visas, not discrimination, happening at 2pm at the State Library, um, 328 Swanson Street in the in the city. Okay, well, I might just go play, I think that's it for um, the Green Left kind of activist calendar, and I'll just go play a quick announcement, and then we'll be going on to our second and last interview for the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a food not bomb supply on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving 
everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. All right, you are listening um, to Green Left um, Radio, and on the line we're going to be um, we're going to be interviewing um, Mia Saf. She is a Palestinian woman who is bo- um, who was born in Palestine and is an activist part of the Free Palestine Melbourne and the Palestine um, Community Association. Um, obviously, probably some of our listeners have probably um, know that there's been some really tragic events in the past week um, in Palestine with um, Israel essentially launching an air um, offence of, of bombings, um, which has killed um, at this stage, as far as I know, over 60 Palestinians. So, yeah, good morning, Mia. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Um, I really appreciate having this opportunity to talk about Palestine and the experiences that Palestinians are facing right now. Yeah, so I guess maybe to start off, I mean, can you give, a bit, I guess, a bit of a summary, I guess, of this kind of situation that's, I guess, happened, I guess, in the past week? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, look, I think for Palestinians, this is a continuation of um, a story that's been happening for decades and decades. Um, Palestinians live under a brutal apartheid um, occupational force, which is the Israeli state. Um, we're consistently subject to land confiscation and being forcibly kicked out of our homes. Um, things really came to a head um, in the neighbourhood of Sheikh Jarrah, which is located in East Jerusalem, um, where there are essentially eight families, uh, 78 people, including 28 children, who are facing the forceful expulsion um, and eviction out of their homes. Um, and I need to be really clear here, um, it, it's basically ethnic cleansing. Um, you know, Israel does not have the legitimate or jurisdiction under international law um, over East Jerusalem. It is recognised as Palestinian land. Um, and basically these families, um, in the middle of one of the holiest months for Muslims, um, Ramadan, are facing being kicked out of their homes into the streets, nowhere to go. Um, and this ignited a lot of protest resistance within Jerusalem, um, which, you know, um, led to... Um, basically Palestinians praying in the Al-Aqsa Mosque being attacked by um, Israeli police forces um, led to quite a few people being hurt. Um, and this is sort of an ongoing snowball effect that has now led to um, conflict within Gaza and, you know, um, so many people dying, innocent civilians being bombed in Gaza. Um, for Palestinians, this is a, a continual story of um, living under oppression and aggression, aggression by the Israeli state. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, innocent civilians dying because of it. Hmm. And I guess one of the, I guess the kind of next kind of thing is really, I mean, what can you tell us, I guess, about, I mean, again, one of the things I think that has been quite expiring has been, like, in response to this clear act of oppression by the um, Israeli apartheid state, um, that there has been this just really, I guess, amazing sort of resistance um, from from Palestinians against this. 
And yeah. also one of the also more importantly, there's also been the solidarity that has been from um, sections of the community, especially since I I know I'm aware that even in um, in New York there were has been massive kind of protests in solidarity with Palestine standing up against this. And so I kind of want to hear, I guess, some of your comments on some of the resistance um, from both the Palestinians and some of the broader solidarity from broader kind of sections of the community outside Palestine. Yeah, look, I think um, uh, we've had amazing solidarity that's come out um, from people on the ground. Um, I think Palestinians have increasingly been able to have their voices heard out into mainstream society, um, not as widely as you could because of the advent of social media. People are able to now see um, what is happening in Palestine, whereas before the Israeli propaganda machine has, was very effective in being able to contain and control um, and hide behind, what, um, behind the propaganda so that people couldn't actually see the facts on the ground. Um, and I think people now are um, increasingly able to see that Israel is a violent, um, racist, state, it is an apartheid state, um, and Palestinians have continually tried to resist that aggression and that oppression. Um, people, I think, are starting to see the extent of the violence of the military, of the Israeli military and the Israeli state, and exactly the type of conditions that Palestinians live under. Um, and I think it's a real testament to Palestinians' will to survive, to resist against that type of oppression. Um, you know, we we know that Gaza now is entering almost its 14, or more than 14 years, under a, a really severe, um, intense embargo, um, where, you know, 40% of the population there are unemployed. Everything is completely controlled by the Israeli state. They live under constant threat of violence from the Israeli state. Um, and then, you know, Palestinians insidiously under the occupied territories in um, East Jerusalem living um, under their control with laws that completely strip them away of their basic civil rights. Um, and I think people are seeing that and, you know, they're reacting because it's a human rights issue. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a growing force where people are realising, actually, this is not this complicated uh, you know, situation. This is not this complicated um, issue. It, it's quite basic. It's a simple issue. We have an oppressor and we have an oppressed. Um, and, you know, the, the images and the visuals don't lie. Um, and, you know, even here in Melbourne, we've had such great solidarity, people reaching out, um, you know, <laughs> offering support. And it's, it's really heartening because I think for a very long time, Palestinians have really felt on their own um, and not heard. And I think now that people are hearing it, it's only going to amplify and hopefully put pressure on Israel to seize and end its military, racist military occupation. Um, so that, that would be really great. No, so I really do thank everyone that's come out around the world and especially here in Melbourne. Um, Mia, in Australia over the last sort of 20 years or so, there's been this sort of demonisation of, of refugees and of Muslim people. And over the last five years or so, we've seen the emergence of uh, kind of far-right groups like um, Reclaim Australia and the True Blue Crew and some of those groups. Um, I'm wondering if you can comment on the extent to which... Um, kind of parallel to the violence of the state against Palestinians in Israel, there's also this kind of cultivation of really intense and toxic nationalism and hatred uh, amongst the 
uh, Israeli people? Like, to what extent is is, is that um, shaping what's happening? And to what extent are mainstream media and mainstream uh, politicians in Israel guilty of, of kind of cultivating that, that sort of toxic hatred? I mean, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. Um, the Israeli state is very much so um, cultivating a very systemically racist um, system, but also cultivating very extreme fringes and um, racist ideas within Israeli society and also empowering it. Um, so you have very violent um, settlers who are armed, who patrol Palestinian neighbourhoods, who seize Palestinian homes, and the Israeli state and the military protect them. Um, Palestinians are increasingly, especially also in East Jerusalem, under threat of violent settlers. Um, and, you know, because there's been so much apathy from world leaders, because the Israeli state has never been, you know, checked or criticised for its actions, and because it's a highly racist and violent state, it only breeds um, the very extremes um, within its society, and it also protects it. So, you know, you know, Chef Jedi is a very good example where, you know, violent Israeli settlers are seizing homes of Palestinians, um, and instead of the Israeli state or the police or the judiciary, you know, going, you can't do that. They embolden them and they empower them. And the very rhetoric and the very laws that exist means it empowers them. Um, and, yeah, there is some definitely some correlation between what we see here in Australia, the ultra-nationalist racist views, um, with what you hold anywhere around the world, um, where there's right-wing ultra-nationalist racist white supremacist in this instance views. Um and it is, it's really concerning because it means that there's no true analysis of uh, what's the moral compass here, what's okay and what's not. I think that, you know, we have a lot of, you know, even the Australian government, the American government, world leaders around, around, um, support the Israeli state. Um, and if you're going to support and you're going to fund them, then you might want to know what exactly that you're supporting and funding and whether you, you're okay with such racist supremacist um, actions occurring. Are you okay with an apartheid state? And are you okay with that state emboldening and protecting violent <laughs> armed, you know, settlers um, who believe in the eradication of Palestinians? So... Uh, yeah, it's it, it, it's very interesting, but I do think there's a part that you know our government can play as well yeah. in that. Speaking of that, I mean, given that we're kind of doing this interview on free CR, and I guess one of the things about we um, about the purpose of, I guess of trying to have the um the discussions like this is so we can actually put forward the Palestinian voice um into the into the media, and I guess I want that kind of extends into. I've been reading um, in terms of this conflict as it's happened in like the past week, um, the kind of liberal kind of media um, sort of response. And of course, part of the how, how the media attempts to kind of manufacture kind of consent is through trying to kind of depict um, this kind of conflict as basically a clash, I guess, between right. both kind of sides. And I think it's been quite appalling that the ABC, which has been sort of depicted by the right as some left-wing sort of communist sort of publication, um, has been trying to, has been actually had some of the worst, I think, coverage on the, on, on, in the, on the, on Palestine in the past week, basically giving legitimacy to these sort of both kind of sides argument that, um, tries to paint, um, you know, the oppressed, um, the oppressed fighting back as, 
as being just as bad as the oppressor. And I guess kind of want to hear some of your comments yeah, on how yeah, some of the mainstream just, media has responded to this. Absolutely. Calling it a clash completely hides behind what the actual situation on the ground is. This is not a, an equal fight. There's the power, powerful and the powerless. Palestinians don't have the military might of Israel. We don't have a military. Uh, we're a civilian population that is controlled by a violent military, military heavily armed military state. Um, th- this isn't even remotely, oh, two sides are fighting and it's about this contentious issue. No, it, it's very simple. Um, we are occupied by the Israeli state. We are living under an apartheid state, um, forced ethnic cleansing. Um, to, to, to pitch it as just this, simple, this clash takes away everything about the, the context of what's happening. It doesn't highlight that, in fact, no, this is ethnic cleansing and Palestinians are trying to resist that. We are trying to resist ethnic cleansing. We're trying to resist this apartheid state and we just want basic human rights. I just kind of wanted to touch on a previous point that was made earlier um, about refugees. Um, You know, there are Palestinian refugees, one of the highest refugee population in the world. Um, Palestinians who are refugees within their own countries. Um, You know, you have Palestinians like Sheikh Jarrah is a very good example of um, families who were made refugees in 1948 um, from places like Hertha, Yaffa and Jerusalem um, who were who had you know were, were settled in East Jerusalem, um, and you know it was that area was built by the UNH um, United Nations for Palestinians um, and the Jordanian government at the time. It's recognised Palestinian land, and it was built for them to be able to settle because they were forcibly ethnically cleansed out of their homes where they have no right of return. Um, so. You know, we here in Australia, we have, a, I would say, an abominable um, treatment of refugees. Um, and as Palestinians, we have had continual displacement um, and have been made refugees on multiple occasions, whether it was 1948, whether it was 1967, whether it was 1973, by the State of Israel by the State of Israel, um, until this day there are Palestinian refugees who cannot go back to their homes. They have no right to return. Um, so I really kind of wanted to touch on that because it was raised a bit earlier. All right. Well, um, we're getting um, running out of time because basically our program has to finish at kind of like around 8.30. I guess I want to go into the important part in how people can... Um, show solidarity and support um, Palestinians, maybe give a bit of details for the upcoming rallies and actions and other kind of things that people can be do, um, can do to um, stand in solidarity and support the struggle. Right. Yes, thank you. Um, so there is a Palestine protest happening um, on the 15th of May, which is also the day of the Al-Nakba for Palestinians, which we would call the Great Catastrophe. Um, that means it's the day that Palestinians were forcibly ethnically cleansed out of their home. Um, so at 1pm in front of the State Library, we'll be having a protest. Please come, um, bring your friends and family. Um, it, it, everyone is encouraged. Um, we also will be having a follow-up protest on the 22nd of May as well, 1pm at the State Library. Please check out Free Palestine Melbourne page, even the um, APAN, so Australian Palestine, uh, Palestine Advocacy Network page. Please reach out to any pro-Palestine organisations around you, whether that's through your Palestine Community Association, local groups. Um, we're here. Uh, we are very happy to um, have your support and um, have you be there with us, please come out to the protest. And I would also like to say thank you so much. I know that the Australian news media has never been quite great, but it's always uh, on Palestine um, and covering it and 
revealing the truth. So it's always great to have a news media like this who's willing to actually bring the truth out into the public. So thank you so much. Um, so, yeah, please come out and, and reach out. If you see us at the protest, come sign up. Um, we're very happy to talk to any supporters out there. Hmm. All right. Well, um, thank you very much, Mia. And, yeah, just to repeat that, there's going to be a protest at 1pm at the State Library this Saturday. And, yes, we definitely want everyone who is listening to get to that protest. I think it is very important um, to support, um, to stand with Palestine. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things, just a, a bit of a random kind of note, FreeCR has actually faced, in the past, has actually faced numerous kind of controversies in the past for our, um, for the station's kind of reporting on Palestine. In fact, we've re- received kind of like attacks from Zionists, etc., for our uncompromising sort of coverage on on Palestine. And so we're kind of proud to be, um, Green Left Radio as a program of FreeCR is sort of proud to be part of that tradition of keeping up um, the solidarity for Palestine. Thanks again, Mayor. Thank you so much. All right. Um, so yes, we're just interviewing um, Mia from um, Pal- um, from Free Palestine Melbourne about this the ongoing tragic situation that's um, occurring in Palestine right now. So yeah, as I kind of said, but um, definitely get to the protest this Saturday at 1 p.m. at the State Library. Now. We're getting a bit now to the end of our program. I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. I'd like to thank all our guests who um, were interviewed on our program this um, for this week. And, um, yes, I would like to um, stay tuned. Um, there'll be, I think, a repeat of... Um, Earth Matters, um, I'm playing uh, after this. And then I'd like to, yeah, and... Um, Stay tuned for next week for another round of um, um, Radical Radio on Friday from 7am on 855am. See you then. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Red's under.